Welcome to Beyond Travesti, a podcast where I talk to trans and gender expansive opera and music theater artists about old constructs, present concerns, and visions for the future of our individual and collective work. I'm Bryce McClendon. I'm a countertenor, writer, teacher, and creative consultant based in Manhattan. On this episode, I'll be talking with soprano, librettist, composer, and author Jay St. Flono. We'll talk about their sense of self as a multidisciplinary artist. It was only when I accepted the fact that I need to be able to use all of my creative gifts in this arena and not just market myself only as a singer. That's when that's yeah. when I actually started to make money and actually have opportunities and to be taken seriously. We'll talk about Jay's journey to become a soprano after years of study as a tenor. There needs to be space made in vocal programs for altos and sopranos who are not cis women. And Jay will tell us how magic and folklore are crucial to their storytelling. I'm concerned that we have gotten into a space now where the Black experience will only be understood through trauma. Today, my guest is multidisciplinary artist Jay St. Flono. Born and raised in New York, Jay is a soprano, librettist, composer, actor, and author. In 2019 and 2020, Jay was a librettist fellow in American Opera Project's Composers and the Voice training program. Jay has performed extensively as a soloist and ensemble member in the world of oratorio and African-American sacred music, including the Wendell Whalum Recital at the Hampton University Ministers Conference and Choir Directors slash Organists Guild Workshop in Hampton, Virginia, the Brooklyn Ecumenical Choir, and the Brooklyn Contemporary Chorus. During the 2019-2020 season, Jay also joined the ensemble cast for the premiere of Stonewall at New York City Opera, a work commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots that helped further advance the LGBT rights movement in the United States. In the summer of 2024, Jay will partner with Sugar Hill Salon Chamber Music in Harlem to present their solo vocal cantata, Praise Song for the Flying Africans. Their book, Black American Magic, A Feast of Food and Folklore, was released this fall and is available for purchase from Barnes & Noble Press. Hi, Jay. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. To start us off, I'd like to just ask you what brought you to classical singing to begin with and what keeps you involved with it? Very good question. I had an early exposure to all kinds of music. Um, I grew up in a very musical household. My mother was classically trained and my grandmother and my aunts all loved classical music as well as my father, as well as gospel, jazz pretty much everything. Um, And I grew up in the 90s, so they definitely were not fans of (laughs) (laughs) hip-hop. Classical music was a mainstay in my household. And, you know, I just, I grew up listening to it on WQXR with my great aunt who loved the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts. And Mm -hmm. 
you know, it was always in my general soundtrack of my upbringing. Oh, and to add to that, I also played clarinet and piano, and I was in choir at church and school. So yeah, I was lots of music, lots of music. And what keeps me involved in it is pretty much the same things that led me to it. It's Mm. the expression, the beauty of storytelling in this particular bravura type of way is, has always been very attractive to me. Yeah. And so that's what keeps me coming back and keeps me in love with it. Yeah. I know about you too, that like as a kid, you didn't really contain your interests to one thing. You know, you were doing a lot of different things, not even just in music. Um, and I, I know that's something you've retained as an adult artist as well, to a certain extent. So I'm curious about, you know, as another multidisciplinary artist, how do you view yourself uh, both Across your life and now, do you think of it as like a strength of yours that you're drawn to so many different things? And have you felt any dissonance during your academic and performing career between what you wanted to do and the expectation to prioritize and market yourself along specific disciplinary lines? Mm, I definitely think that it is a strength, but I think that society does not understand how to deal with it. So uh-huh. it makes it difficult only because of other people's perceptions. There was no other way that I could possibly be as a person in this mm. world without mm. being uh, multidisciplinary in my approach mm-hmm. to the arts because my parents are both multidisciplinary people. My mother was an actress. My mother was a singer. My mother could dance. My mother could write poetry. My father is a fabulous storyteller. He's an orator. All of the things that I'm able to do, I'm really a combination of both of my parents' best qualities. And they helped to foster any interest I had in those fields from the time I was very young. And so there was a lot of positivity poured into me that just has been able to carry through with me into my adult life, even when things do get difficult. So any dissonance that I have come against in my academic and performing career, a lot of that dissonance was caused by things not related to my skills or capabilities, but, you mm. know, uh, time management, neurodivergence, et cetera, sure. et cetera, et cetera. Um, in 2004, I was 14. Um, yeah. And that's when I got started singing in the Boys Choir of Harlem with the Choir Academy of Harlem under Walter Turnbull. And those were my first professional musical engagements. My music theory and piano teacher was Warren Wilson, who was Shirley Verrett's yeah. accompanist for a number of years. Yeah. I will say that as I moved into the solo classical artist expression in 2011, I had a very clear understanding of what I wanted my career to look like, and I wanted it to look very traditional Mm. based on the models of the careers of the singers that I had been studying for a number of Mm. years prior to that. I was a neophyte. I wasn't wasn't completely aware Mm. of the dangerous financial position that the classical world was in, even in 2011, and how that would dramatically change as we entered into the late 2010s going into COVID season and now coming out of lockdown and and dealing with a slew of issues that definitely predate all of us 
I would say because my thinking was so traditional, I was limiting myself. I thought I had to make um, a choice, so to speak, to be very definitive yeah, yeah, about yeah. I'm just a singer and I'm just going to do this. And mm-hmm. that caused a lot of emotional strain for me. And it was only when I accepted the fact that I need to be able to use all of my creative gifts in this arena and not just market myself only as a singer. That's when that's yeah. when I actually started to make money and actually have opportunities mm-hmm. and to be taken seriously because I was taking my, I was not denying my own nature. Yeah, for sure. So initially I had some questions prepared for our conversation about your shift from tenor to soprano and specifically how that change might have had gendered implications either in how you were perceived by others or in how you felt while you were performing. But when we spoke in advance, you were honest with me that you didn't really want to talk about gender. So I kind of want to turn the lens on my own impulses a bit, if you'll indulge me, uh, at the risk of making you talk about the thing you don't want to talk about. I'm just curious if you'd be willing to share some about the fatigue you feel when asked to speak about your understanding of gender. Um, In which contexts does the expectations that you will speak about it come up for you? And how do you react when it does? I think the fatigue is caused by a general disillusionment with Mm. how we discuss gender in the West. And many times as much as as race can as well and other things i find that when it comes to being a musician that conversation always gets in the way of the work mm. it's never talked about in a way that would uplift the work it just gets in the way and it's yet mm. another thing another uh obstacle or another um um just thing, amorphous thing that I feel that I have to deal with because then I feel like I have to answer a bunch of questions or that even if I don't answer them, the questions are going to be burning in people's minds and it's going to be kind of like a refrigerator running in the background. Sure. It's yeah, that, that like con- white noise. That constant hum, that constant white noise. Um, mm-hmm. And so because of that, I've I made that decision to not talk about gender with Mm -hmm. most people the shift from tenor to soprano i was already making that shift before i had any personal revelations about gender which is why i maintain that my vocal shift is it's really separate from how i felt about how i felt about gender i mean when i publicly declared you know being gender variant in some in some form not necessarily saying that I was a trans woman, although people definitely ran with that idea mm. because of my presentation mm-hmm. and because of the pronouns I was using. It was easy to sure. make, for people to make assumptions, and I'm not castigating them for that. But it, you know, um, sure. Yeah. But one of the things I did say initially when I became more forthcoming about it was that I do not really identify as a man nor a woman. Um, I just identify as a, mm-hmm. a being of feminine energy. Take of take of that what you will. Yep. Those were my exact words on my Facebook post. 
And I feel like nobody really paid attention to that. Hmm. They just kind of saw me getting laser and they saw the flag and they mm. saw all these other things. And they were like, Oh, mm. Jay's a woman. Now along the way, when it came to singing, definitely being a soprano and moving in the classical space, I've had an interesting time because it is easy to gender me as a woman because yeah. of the way my voice sounds when I'm singing, especially. So I wasn't exactly upset about it. I just kind of was like, okay, this is fine. If this means I get to wear a nice wig to church and no one cares, Mm. perfect. But along the way outside of music, I noticed that I started to, in essence, take on specific experiences with dysphoria from other people that weren't my own. And I realized that I was doing this in an effort to build community. And then eventually I had to really sit down and stop myself and really investigate why I felt these things and also investigate the emotional shifts that I was experiencing, uh, where they were coming from, if any of the voices in my head were mine alone or if they were society telling me things. Ah, there were so many things going on that weren't even about me singing. So that when I did sing, I had all of this weight, this emotional weight behind my stuff that really inhibited me from truly being expressive, which is kind of paradoxical because, Mm. you know, singing should be the freest thing ever. However, singing is a reflection of all emotions, even the negative ones. While I was performing, um, being able to sing with women singers, um, being able to blend in with women singers, it felt very good because Mm -hmm. for the longest time, training as a tenor initially felt like a really beautiful coat that just didn't fit right. Didn't fit. Yeah. It was like, yes, this was definitely, it says, it says my size in the tag on the back, but the cut is still not for me. Yeah. And I had spent so, I had spent a long time trying very hard to fit into constrictive hypermasculine ideals about what I was supposed to sound like. Um, And then when I finally let that go, it was so freeing because as soon as I made the switch to soprano, that's when I actually started getting work. There was something about me singing in this register that was more interesting. There was something about me singing in this register that was more connective, that was more beautiful, and that was more interesting to most people's ears. Yeah. And this is not to say that the original voice I trained with was ugly or less than, mm-hmm. but there was still this emotional and, and as a result, physiological barrier that I yes. found so hard to, to deal with. And, yeah. um, I will say that in my own in my own vocal development, so the voice I sing with now 
is my original voice. It's yeah. just more mature. I just felt very underserved performing in a Black tenor space, largely because the legacy of Black tenors has always been very spaced out in this business mm. because of the mm-hmm. types of roles that tenors typically would sing. They were not keen on allowing Black men to enter that space and be devos mm-hmm. as tenors. Mm-hmm. Black men as bass baritones and basses, that's fine because you can play mm-hmm. the villain, you can play the old man, you can play something lascivious, you can play the rapist. Mm-hmm. But a Black man performing the role of a hero was much too much for people to take. So yeah. I felt like I was being sort of prepped for battle by entering spaces as a Black tenor. And deep inside, I was like, my voice can do so much more than this. And I feel like I'm getting cut off from access to that the longer I stay Mm. in this space. And also, I'm so tired of having to walk into the room and be called the Black Pavarotti. These are things people would say to me as though it was something I should have been happy or grateful for. It actually made me feel completely devalued. So moving voice parts, it was rather easy for me to do because my actual vocal development was not like other singers in my cohorts. So when I was in the voice choir of Harlem as a child, I was a soprano slash alto. They switched me in between. And this was at the age of 14. I was still singing very, very high vocal parts with no discomfort, no dis-ease, no pain. My other Mm -hmm. classmates found it extremely difficult to navigate that. They were already tenors and lower. I was not. I left Choir Academy in 2005. I stopped singing for a little while, except in church occasionally. My vocal cords lengthened, clearly, to give me the adult Mm -hmm. sound, but they did not thicken Mm. as much and it's that lack of thickening that has enabled that enabled me to continue to sing in the high register without discomfort dis-ease or or pain yep i'm still able to sail up there without a problem but i think that the vocal development for voices that have been exposed to testosterone natally the tradition of vocal development does a disservice because it, it makes assumptions that all of these singers yep. will become baritones yeah. with a few becoming tenors. And that's not the case. Mm-hmm. There needs to be space made in vocal programs for altos and sopranos who yeah. are not cis women. Yes. And who can train into those voice types post-puberty. Yeah. And who 100%. are taught the same technique that cis women are taught. If I had been given that opportunity, I would be in a very different place career-wise, and I would have been much further along. Mm. And I wouldn't have had this this crisis in my late 20s about what my voice was doing. Because at a certain point, the tenor things just became uncomfortable. And so when you had all of... And now, mind you, I told that entire story without mentioning pronouns or gender or anything. Yep. So that when the gendered uh, things came through, eventually I went through certain emotional stages that led me right back to where I had begun. It's all about, it's, very, it's been very cyclical for me. It's always about coming back mm-hmm. to where I had started before because my gender uh, experience, expression, 
was really uh, kerneled before the age of openly discussing pronouns. So uh-huh. this is this is like late two thousands, uh, and also. Um, The uh, the feeling of that was based on me accepting my gender queerness. Mm-hmm. Because once I did that, in the full glory of whatever it is, the fluidity of whatever that might be, once I did that, it made singing so much easier. And I and I told a friend of mine, I said, when I was doing this, I said, I do not, I'm not trying to transition from one gender prison to another. Uh-huh. Please make, I, ha- I had to make that abundantly clear to people. And I think that yeah. the tradition of, 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 of a two-spirit, uh, gay person, because I'm as mm-hmm. my personal identification, I identify as Afro-Indigenous. Um, mm-hmm. And my role as a two-spirit person uh, does not necessarily have to resemble what other gender expansive or gender variant people are experiencing. And I was able to style myself as femininely as I wanted and have it be celebrated and not treated as an imposition. That was the most freeing thing for me. However people felt about what I was doing or who I was, not my problem, not my business. This was for me. And the more I did that and the more I cleaned space in that way, I was really healing parts of myself that had been neglected for so long. The very feminine parts of myself that had been abandoned. You know, for me, there also was a connection to my mother because she she was a classical singer. She passed away in 2017. She really was my first voice teacher in many ways and taught me a lot of what I know about singing. Being able to sing in this register and then sound like her, mm. it was jarring at first. There, w- there was a psychological block, but eventually what I per- was perceiving as a block became a strength for me. There were just so many poignant moments i had singing in this new way professionally and not just in the shower mm-hmm. singing in this new way professionally getting money for it mm. you know it, it's a different arena of thought i was healing maternal loss grief i was healing my inner feminine child self i was healing negative thoughts i had about myself in general and i was healing trauma from conservatory Let's talk a little about your work. You just published a new book, Black American Magic, A Feast of Food and Folklore. 
but you also have a performance coming up next summer of your solo cantata, Praise Song for the Flying Africans, which is a sacred cantata based on the myth of the flying Africans of Igbo Landing. I'd love to hear some about the genesis of that project and how it's changed since the premiere. And then I wonder if you could also speak to how mythology and folklore feature in your creative consciousness and how you choose source material for your storytelling. Praying Song for the Flying Africans began December of 2022. I had been listening to a, a number of Bach cantatas. I was really interested in the idea of a sacred cantata that would incorporate the underserved, the overlooked parts of Black folkloric history from the South. It really began me sitting in my room, hearing music and fitting some text to it. And the text comes from multiple sources. Some of it comes from the Bible. Some of it comes from portions of the Bible that were translated into Kikongo, which is one of the ancestral African-American languages. Um, And then some of it also came from the poems of Phyllis Wheatley, who is the first Black woman to have anything published in the United States in the 1700s and is one of the most beautiful, prolific poets um, of her time and really does not get the shine that she deserves. Yeah, for sure. And and, and, and and none of her poems, to my knowledge, have been set to music by Black composers. I haven't seen anything. And they're so luxurious. So, yeah, so there were multiple points of entry for this cantata. But I was really interested in a sacred work that was not necessarily about Jesus, because I feel that the African-American sacred music canon Clearly, it comes out of the church and has all the associations with it. And most definitely, the Black church does practice Christianity different from other parts of the world. But I was still interested in what indigenous folklore of our people could look like in a cantata format. Mm -hmm. So my idea behind it was to create something that could be performed by Black singers and instrumentalists Mm -hmm. at different points of the year. Mm. Not just during Black History mm. Month, sure, but something that would be just as lauded and just as sought after as sacred music of Europe. Mm. Um, most of my work, writing work, deals with folklore. But the myth of the flying Africans, uh, for people who are listening and not aware of, of the story, in 1803, there was a mass suicide committed in Georgia by a group of captive Igbo from West Africa, whose homeland is now in present-day Nigeria. The Igbo, they resisted captivity. And as they were led off of the ship in Georgia, on the sea island of St. Simon's Island in coastal Georgia, they walked into the waters of the creek, because that creek is very deep and it leads into the Atlantic. And they chanted, the water brought us, the water will take us away. Mm. And this was an act of resistance against enslavement, which they knew was coming. That act of sacrifice, because it was at least 75 people. So this act had ripples throughout the country. Because in 1803, the vast majority of Black people living in America were native-born. The slave trade from across the sea had not yet been outlawed. Mm -hmm. So any of the new arrivals were quickly acculturated into a long-standing, I guess you could say, African-American identity that had been in development since the 1600s. 
So you have at least seven to 10 generations of Black people already here yeah. in 1803. Yeah. But the Igbo were, these these Igbo, they were not willing to become part of this at all. So when they walked into the waters of the Sound, they drowned. Mm-hmm. And eyewitnesses of the event say that upon their death, they saw spirits of birds lift from the water and fly back eastward towards the continent. Mm. And that story has really been running within multiple lineages of Black storytellers in the South since 1803. And it grew over time into this corpus of tales about enslaved people who had abilities of transvection and resisted capture or had moved from the plantation through the use of flight. Yes, so the so the flying African uh, uh, importance it's it's it appears in all black poetry at some point, black American artwork. It's everywhere. Those images and motifs are everywhere. They're extremely important. And I have family that lives on Saint Simon's Island mm. in Georgia, where mm. this event took place. And of course, there there's much more to the flying African mythos than just that one of in 1803. Sure. But it's too much to go into. But it, but you know those things are extremely important to me. And you know Toni Morrison says that if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. Mm-hmm. And that's how I approach everything that I create. The I'm really interested in the classical canon being diversified through the hands of Black artists, especially Black artists who are gender variant, because we are truly unseen mm-hmm. by white people who are cis or non-cis and by Black people mm-hmm. who are cis. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. or non-queer. So, um, I really wanted to get something started about creating things that would that would speak to the nourishment of black culture and history and mm. how it can be expanded and shown in different lights than what we're used to um because so much of the literature now about the black experience on the operatic stage is rather limited to civil rights mm-hmm. um and you know it's, there's nothing wrong with with those things but i'm concerned that we have gotten into a space now where the black experience will only be understood through trauma and trauma by the um, state there's no sure. there's almost no room sure. for magic i really wanted to challenge those ideas about what Black stories could look like in different classical mediums and bring our folklore to life in a different way. I've not really seen it happen um, as much. So that really was the kernel of inspiration behind that. I mean, tell us a little bit about the upcoming plans for it. What's um, happened already? You know, how is the work developing and, and what do you want for it beyond this next iteration? So I received the commission to complete it from Sugar Hill Salon, which is a black and brown owned um, chamber music organization here in the city, um, founded and operated by my friend Alex Davis, a fabulous bassoonist. We premiered a movement of the cantata in April at a concert in Harlem at a place called Lucille's. The instrumentation is for soprano, five string banjo, flute, violin, 
two cellos, contrabass, and piano. Mm -hmm. We did not have access to all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so what I did was I wrote, I, I wrote a a truncated version of it that was just for violin, flute, and bassoon and voice. Mm-hmm. We did that at Lucille's in Harlem in April, and it was received very, very well, which I'm not shy of saying people loved it, and they wanted to hear more. It was an extended ovation for it. And that's scary because, one, it's scary to sing. <laughs> yeah, period. Two, it's scary to sing your own music. And it's also scary to do it in the classical arena because singers are not meant to be composers in this arena as the business currently un understands itself. So I knew that I was breaking a lot of barriers and doing a lot of things that were considered to be improper by most people in, quote unquote, in power in this in this business but i don't care about that well it's also so funny because like historically singers were like learning composition you know this was like just an expected thing yes singers were learning composition singers were writing their own things singers premiered their own works singers had works written for them that they had a hand in writing so the idea that singers only are meant yeah. to interpret is a lie um and we've really got to get out of that yeah. because there are singers with other gifts that are being stifled in this business. Anyway, it was received very well. And so we are moving forward. We're working on getting funding for the full production of it, which is written in five movements. I'm learning a lot about orchestration and even the, the nuances of vocal writing. Yeah. It, it's really been such a pleasure to make music and to challenge myself. We're seeking funding and we're going to do the full premiere in June of 2024. There you have it. I talked about gender. Are you happy now? <laughs> That's all for my conversation with Jay. To learn more about them, you can follow them on Instagram at jsaintflono. That's J-A-Y-S-A-I-N-T-F-L-O-N-O. Check out the show notes as well for a link to where you can purchase their book, which I have read. And yes, it is fantastic. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Beyond Travesti, and you can follow me at The Bryce is Wrong or on Substack at brycemcclendon.substack.com. The best way to support this podcast is to become a paid subscriber on Substack. All of the proceeds go toward the artists who I invite to speak with me. Also, I'd love to hear from you. Any feedback or thoughts from this month's conversation? Get in touch at Bryce McClendon at Substack.com. That's all for now. Thank you.